Hi there, welcome back to another episode of the Mind Your Liberty podcast. My name is Andrew, and today's date is October 31st, 2022. Again, getting the episode for the month in right at the last minute. And as you know, if you've been following along, we've been reading through some documents from the American Revolution era, and today is no different. This piece is from November 20th, 1772, and is written by one of my favorite old revolutionaries, Samuel Adams. Covered a lot of his stuff. He's important if you're looking at the revolution. He's important in the development of thoughts on liberty. And so, today we're going to be covering a pamphlet he wrote for the Committee of Correspondence for Massachusetts. Again, November 20th, 1772, called The Rights of the Colonists. Now, this was a three-part pamphlet published in the Gazette there in Boston, and this is the first part of that. I'm going to go ahead and read the introduction, or at least part of it, from teachingamericanhistory.org. Again, this is by Robert McDonald that wrote this introduction. I don't want to take any credit there. I'll link to it in the description of the podcast, and I just want to say this is going to be a shorter episode. It's a short piece and I promise I'm not going to make it into a 45-minute episode like I did the last one. So, from teachingamericanhistory.org, it says, In the 1760s, Samuel Adams emerged as a key leader of Boston's radicals. Although his second cousin, John Adams, described him as zealous, ardent, and keen in his defense of Americans' liberties, Royal Governor Thomas Hutchinson doubted, quote, whether there is a greater incendiary in the king's dominion or a man of greater malignity of heart. It is no surprise that Hutchison possessed a negative opinion of Samuel Adams, beginning with the Stamp Act crisis and continuing with colonists' resistance to the Townsend Acts and efforts to propagandize the Boston Massacre, Adams has been a thorn in Hutchison's side. By 1772, the issue was who should pay royal officials' salaries. Adams perceived that whoever held the purse strings would be able to use these officials as puppets. So did Hutchison and his English allies, who in 1768 arranged for part of Hutchison's salary to be paid from the proceeds of customs revenues. In 1770, Great Britain added the tea tax as a source of Hutchison's income. Two years later, it directed that superior court judges to be paid from these sources as well. Adams insisted that the Massachusetts Assembly, which answered the voters, should compensate these judges in order to maintain its leverage over them. The controversy allowed Adams to prompt the town of Boston to appoint a committee of correspondence that would produce a broad statement of colonists' rights. The resulting document, drafted primarily by Adams, helps to underscore the importance to the American revolutionaries the idea of the ideas of John Locke, who justified England's glorious revolution in 1688-89 by arguing that ousted King James II had failed to uphold government's obligation to protect individuals' fundamental rights to liberty, life, and property. Life, liberty, and property, it says in that order. So I'm going to leave off the introduction right there, and I just want you to listen for how these texts kind of sound familiar to some of the ones I've read earlier this year. Again, this is 1772, so four years after 1768, where we left off with the last piece, that letter to Dennis DeBert. And you'll hear some of the same language, and this is a much broader piece than that was. But you'll also hear some of the same things you hear in, a couple years later, the Declaration of Independence. 
And all these writers were building on each other. Samuel Adams was inspired and built on the works of James Otis and John Dickinson. John Dickinson later built on the works of Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson built on the works of Samuel Adams. And they all were reading each other's stuff. This piece was published in the Boston Gazette, but it had circulation all across the colonies. And again, it got everybody kind of in a, in a frame of mind because they're reading this in the newspaper and it's called the rights of the colonists. And so the men are reading this and they're thinking, yeah, yeah. And it's making an intellectual tie to John Locke, like the introduction said there. So I, there was a few words in there I didn't recognize. Uh, so I'm going to go over them here. I had to look them up and I'm just going to do the Google dictionary. The first word is solecism. S-O-L-E. C-I-S-M, solecism, which means a grammatical mistake in speech or writing, or a breach of good manners, a piece of incorrect, incorrect behavior. And I believe that latter definition is the more archaic form that was probably being dealt with in this piece. That was the primary definition back in Webster's 1828, whereas the secondary was the grammatical mistake, and they flipped now to where it primarily, primarily means a grammatical mistake. But I think they have Webster's 1828 actually said a barbarism. So incorrect behavior. The second word that I heard that I had to look up that I'm sharing with you now is perdurable. P-E-R-D-U-R-A-B-L-E. Enduring, continuously, imperishable. So listen for that word, perdurable, means enduring continuously, imperishable. The third word that I was not familiar with, the word extempore, E-X-T-E-M-P-O-R-E, extempore, spoken or done without preparation, an extempore speech. And after I thought about it a little bit, I was thinking about it later on, I thought, well, I've heard the word extemporaneously, <laughs> I didn't know what it meant. Well, that's the root word of that, apparently. Extemporaneously must mean done without much preparation. Because extempore means spoken or done without much prep without preparation. So listen for that word as well. Also, I just want to point out 1772 is the year that John or excuse me, Samuel Adams had that portrait painted of himself, the real famous one where he's in his uh, brownish reddish frock coat outfit. And he's standing in front of a bunch of papers. He's actually pointing at the Massachusetts Constitution. And so you get an idea of what he looked like in 1772. He's already get, getting some age on him at that point. Promise to not take up too much of your time today. So I'm going to dive right into the reading of the rights of the colonists, primarily by Samuel Adams. Section 1. Natural Rights of the Colonists as Men. Among the natural rights of the colonists are these. First, a right to life. Secondly, to liberty. Thirdly, to property. Together with the right to support and defend them in the best manner they can. These are evident branches of, rather than deductions from, the duty of self-preservation, commonly called the first law of nature. All men have a right to remain in a state of nature as long as they please, and in case of intolerable oppression, civil or religious, to leave the society they belong to and to enter another. When men enter into society, it is by voluntary consent, and they have a right to demand and insist upon the performance of such conditions 
and previous limitations as form an equitable original compact. Every natural right not expressly given up, or, from the nature of a social compact, necessarily ceded, remains. All positive and civil laws should conform, as far as possible, to the law of natural reason and equity. As neither reason requires nor religion permits the contrary, every man living in or out of a state of civil society has a right peaceably and quietly to worship God according to the dictates of his conscience. Just and true liberty, equal and impartial liberty, in matters spiritual and temporal, is a thing that all men are clearly entitled to by the eternal and immutable laws of God and nature, as well as by the law of nations and all well-grounded municipal laws, which must have their foundation in the former. In regard to religion, mutual toleration in the different professions thereof is what all good and candid minds in all ages have ever practiced, and both by precept and exam inculcated on mankind. And it is now generally agreed among Christians that this spirit of toleration, in the fullest extent consistent with the being of civil society, is the chief characteristical mark of the church insomuch that Mr. Locke has asserted and proved, beyond the possibility of contradiction on any solid ground, that such toleration ought to be extended to all whose doctrines are not subversive of society. The only sects which he thinks ought to be, and which by all wise laws are excluded from such toleration, are those who teach doctrines subversive of the civil government under which they live. The Roman Catholics or Papists are excluded by reason of such doctrines as these, that princes excommunicated may be deposed, and those that they call heretics may be destroyed without mercy, besides their recognizing the Pope in so absolute a manner, in subversion of government, by introducing as far as possible into the states under whose protection they enjoy life, liberty, and property, that solecism in politics, imperium in imperio, leading directly to the worst anarchy and confusion, civil discord, war, and bloodshed. The natural liberty of man, by entering into society, is abridged or restrained so far only as is necessary for the great end of society, the best good of the whole. In the state of nature every man is, under God, judge and sole judge of his own rights and of the injuries done him. By entering into society he agrees to an arbiter, or indifferent judge between him and his neighbors, but he no more renounces his original right than by taking a cause out of the ordinary course of law and leaving the decision to referees or indifferent arbitrators. In the last case, he must pay the referees for time and trouble. He should also be willing to pay his just quota for the support of government, the law, and the Constitution, the end of which is to furnish indifferent and impartial judges in all cases that may happen, whether civil, ecclesiastical, marine, or military. The natural liberty of man is to be free from any superior power on earth, and not to be under the will or a legislative authority of man, but only to have the law of nature for his rule. In the state of nature men may, as the patriarchs did, employ hired servants for the defense of their lives, liberties, and property, and they should pay them reasonable wages. Government was instituted for the purpose of common defense, and those who hold the reins of government have an equitable, natural right to an honorable support from the same principle that the laborer is worthy of his hire. But then the same community which they serve ought to be the assessors of their pay. Governors have no right to seek and take what they please. By this, instead of being content with the station assigned them, that of honorable servants of the society, they would soon become absolute masters, 
despots, and tyrants. Hence, as a private man has a right to say what wages he will give in his private affairs, so has a community to determine what they will give and grant of their substance for the administration of public affairs. And in both cases, more are ready to offer their service at the proposed and stipulated price than are able and willing to perform their duty. In short, it is the greatest absurdity to suppose it in the power of one or any number of men at the entering into society to renounce their essential natural rights or the means of preserving those rights. When the grand end of civil government, from the very nature of its institution, is for the support, protection, and defense of those very rights, the principle of which, as is before observed, are life, liberty, and property. If men, through fear, fraud, or mistake, should in terms renounce or give up any essential natural right, the eternal law of reason and the grand end of society would absolutely vacate such renunciation. The right to freedom being the gift of God Almighty, it is not in the power of man to alienate this gift and voluntarily become a slave. Section 2. The Rights of the Colonists as Christians these may be best understood by reading and carefully studying the institutes of the great lawgiver and head of the Christian church, which are to be found clearly written and promulgated in the New Testament. By the act of the British Parliament, commonly called the Toleration Act, every subject in England except papists, etc., were restored to and re-established in his natural right to worship God according to the dictates of his own conscience. And by the charter of this province, it is granted, ordained, and established, that is, declared as an original right, that there should be liberty of conscience allowed in the worship of God to all Christians, except papists, inhabiting, or which shall inhabit, or be resident within, such province or territory. Magna Carta itself is in substance but a constrained declaration or proclamation and promulgation in the name of the king, lords, and commons of the sense the latter had of their original, inherent, indefeasible natural rights, as also those of free citizens equally perdurable with the other. That great author, that great jurist, and even that great court writer, Mr. Justice Blackstone, holds that this recognition was justly obtained of King John, sworn in hand and peradventure it must be one day, sword in hand, again rescued and preserved from total destruction and oblivion. Section 3. The Rights of the Colonists as Subjects A commonwealth, or state, is a body politic, or civil society of men, united together to promote their mutual safety and prosperity by means of their union. All persons born in the British American colonies are, by the laws of God and the nature and by the common law of England, exclusive of all charters from the crown, well entitled, and by the acts of the British Parliament, are declared to be entitled to all the natural, essential, inherent, and inseparable rights, liberties, and privileges of subjects born in Great Britain or within the realm. Among those rights are the following, which no man or body of men, consistently with their own rights as men and citizens or members of society, can for themselves give up or take away from others. First, the first fundamental positive law of all commonwealths or states is the establishing the legislative power. As the first fundamental natural law, also which is to govern even the legislative powers itself, is the preservation of the society. Secondly, the legislative has no right to absolute arbitrary power over the lives and fortunes of the people, nor can mortals assume a prerogative not only too high for men, but for angels, and therefore reserved for the exercise of the deity alone. The legislative cannot justly assume to itself a power to rule by extempore arbitrary decrees, 
but it is bound to see that justice is dispensed, and that the rights of the subjects be decided by promulgated, standing, and known laws, and authorized independent judges, that is, independent as far as possible of prince and people. There should be one rule of justice for rich and poor, for the favored at court and the countrymen at the plow. Thirdly, the Supreme Court cannot justly take from any man any part of his property without his consent in person or by his representative. These are some of the first principles of natural law and justice, and the great barriers of all free states, and of the British Constitution in particular. It is utterly irreconcilable to these principles and to many other fundamental maxims of the common law, common sense, and reason that a British House of Commons should have a right at pleasure to give and grant the property of the colonists. That the colonists are well entitled to all of the essential rights, liberties, and privileges of men and freeborn in Britain is manifest not only from the colony charters in general, but acts of the British Parliament. The statute of the 13th of George II, C7, naturalizes even foreigners after seven years' residence. The words of the Massachusetts Charter are these. And further, our will and pleasure is, and we do hereby for us, our heirs and successors, grant, establish, and ordain that all and every of the subject of us, our heirs, our successors, which shall go to and inhabit within our said province or territory, and every of their children, which shall happen to be born there, or in the seas, in going thither or returning from thence, shall have and enjoy all liberties and immunities of the free and natural subjects within any of the dominions of us, our heirs, our successors, to all intents, constructions, and purposes whatsoever, as if they and every one of them were born within this our realm of England. Now what liberty can there be where property is taken away without consent? Can it be said with any color of truth and justice that this continent of three thousand miles in length, and of a breadth as yet unexplored, in which, however, it is supposed that there are five millions of people, has the least voice, vote, or influence in the British Parliament? Have they altogether any more weight or power to return a single member to that House of Commons who have not inadvertently but deliberately assumed a power to dispose of their lives, liberties, and properties, than to choose an emperor of China? Had the colonists a right to return members to the British Parliament, it would only be hurtful, as, from their local situation and circumstances, it is impossible that they should ever be truly and properly represented them. The inhabitants of this country, in all probability, in a few years, will be more numerous than those of Great Britain and Ireland together. Yet it is absurdly expected by the promoters of the present measures that these, with their posterity to all generations, should be easy, while the property is being disposed of by a house of commons at three thousand miles distance from them, and who cannot be supposed to have the least care or concern for their real interest, who have not only no natural care for their interest, but must be in effect bribed against it, as every burden they lay on the colonist is so much saved or gained to themselves. Hitherto many of the colonists have been free from quit-rents, but if the breath of a British House of Commons can originate an act for taking away all our money, our lands will go next, or be subject to rack rents from haughty and relentless landlords, who will ride at ease, while we are trodden in the dirt. The colonists have been branded with the odious names of traitors and rebels, only for complaining of their grievances. How long such treatment will or ought to be borne is submitted." Well, there you go. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope it got your wheels turning, got you thinking about the time period, got you thinking about your 
natural rights. Because the idea of natural rights was really developed by John Locke, further by Samuel Adams, Thomas Jefferson, and it's been developed since then, all the way up to today, recently, people like Murray Rothbard. And you heard in there, he said, first, a right to life, secondly, to liberty, thirdly, to property, together with the right to support and defend them in the best manner they can. And in some ways, I wish that the committee that drafted the Declaration of Independence would have left it life, liberty, and property instead of changing it to the pursuit of happiness, because property is a much more easy thing to define. And then secondly, I also have to just mention, I was I knew they were anti-Catholic back then. I knew the Catholics were discriminated against, but they were sure open about it, weren't they? Now, maybe they had their reasons. Maybe I need to study that a little bit more. But, man, they were definitely anti-Catholic. Everybody gets toleration except Catholics, pretty much. It's like, who determines what is subversive to society? That Even in today's government, we're fighting the same problem. as Who, who gets to decide what's subversive, what kind of speech is subversive to this society? You start down a bad path once you let the government decide what is subversive. And also I'll mention in there, he says, the right to freedom being the gift of God Almighty, it is not in the power of man to alienate this gift and voluntarily become a slave. I just want to say, but is that really true? I mean, on a surface level, yes, absolutely. You are always able to claim your natural rights, your God-given rights, no matter if you've given them up, if you've ceded the power to government, it is within the right of the people to reclaim those rights at any time, to say, oh, you know what, I'm going to take that power back because government gets its power from the people, not power to the people, power from the people. But on a more basic level, you can voluntarily give away, voluntarily become a slave. Every time you sin, you are becoming a slave. You are in you're enslaving yourself. And that is really where the rubber meets the road. This is where the eternal meets the temporal. Because Christ came, he says, to set the captives at at liberty. Literally. Got my tongue twister there. Here, now, for eternity, in Christ, we are free. Christ has already won the victory over sin. He's broken the bonds that held us captive before we met Christ. But even as a Christian... If you start down that path, if you give in to temptation, you are making yourself a slave. Now, the great thing is Christ has won the victory, and he's waiting with open arms. And so I'd encourage you, get right with God. That's the step one towards liberty. Get right with God. All right. And then I will also say it uh, doesn't go as far as to call for independence, But at the end there, it does seem to lead the reader's mind down that path, saying, "Uh, how far are we going to let this get pressed remains to be seen. Well, we know the end of the story. A couple more years, well, not even a couple more years, they were already going to blows, and then the declaration came out two years later. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you enjoyed the reading. Hope it was beneficial to you of some value. If it was, do me a favor, share it with somebody, share it on uh, Facebook, whatever social media you're on. I haven't been on Facebook hardly at all this year, 
But tell somebody word of mouth, say, hey, I think you'd enjoy this. Something gives you something to think about. I'd appreciate it. If you have any feedback, send it to mindyourliberty at gmail.com. And until next time, thank you for listening and be sure and mind your liberty.